All right. We're going to be going over several verses of scripture, and you won't have time to keep up with it all, I don't think. But we'll settle on one spot and give you a chance to look at your Bibles a little closer there. Now, the first prophecy we have in the Bible, we studied about it about four weeks ago in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15, God said to Adam and Eve, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it, the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head. Speaking of Satan, his head will be bruised. And thou, speaking to Satan, shall bruise his heel, bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. So this prophecy was given in light of Adam and Eve's failure to obey God and live in fellowship with him. They had sinned, and by sinning, they brought death into the world. God disassociated himself with the human race because of what Adam and Eve had done. But then he gave them a little ray of hope. Gave them a little light. He said, there will come one, a seed from the woman, a descendant of the woman, who will undo this terrible thing that Satan and Adam have done in choosing to sin. And the seed of this woman will crush the head of this serpent, though the serpent will also bruise the heel of this seed of the woman. So early in the book of Genesis, we have an outline for the rest of the Bible. There's going to be a conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But in the end, though the seed of the serpent will get in a bite that will wound the seed of the woman, ultimately the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and terminate his power. That's Genesis 3.15. Now in Genesis 4.1, Eve, when she has her first child, says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now that response indicates that she was anticipating this fulfilled prophecy. And certainly she must have thought, as Adam must have, that this was going to be that woman's seed. I mean, it was the first one. And this was going to be the one who'd spoil Satan. Instead, we talked about how Cain joined Satan's ranks and murdered his brother. So the first one born turned out to be a murderer, not a savior. Now later, another prophecy is given. Many prophecies are given. But one I want to point out, Jeremiah 31, 22, God says, How long will thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter, speaking to Israel? For the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth, a woman shall compass a man. So he predicted there would come a time when a woman would go round about, would circumvent the man. Something is going to happen. In the book of Isaiah, written nearly 800 years before Christ, 714, he said, The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Now that is certainly a sign. He said that a virgin, that's a girl, who's never been married and never had a husband, never had relationships with a man, that that woman is going to conceive. That is, a child is going to be conceived in her womb without the presence and of the male. She is going to have a baby. This is the prophecy of that seed of the woman. Now it makes more sense why he didn't say the seed of the man and the woman, why he didn't say Adam's seed, why he said Eve's seed, when we know that a woman doesn't produce seed, only the man produces seed. 
And yet the prophecy, being strange, said the seed of the woman, which would require a woman to compass a man if she were going to produce a child without the aid of a man. But we now know that this virgin shall conceive by the Holy Ghost and the holy thing which will be born in her will be Emmanuel, he said in Isaiah 7, God with us, God in the flesh. So there's a prophecy throughout the Bible that there will be a woman give birth to a man-child, which man-child will be the savior of the world. And in Luke chapter 1, 34, 35, the Mary said unto the angel, how shall this thing be seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So the Son of the woman is going to be the Son of God, according to the prophecy. John 1.14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. See, up until then, the promise of God had been nothing more than the word of God. The promised seed was that, a promise. And suddenly the promised seed becomes flesh. Suddenly the word of God takes on flesh. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in Romans 9, he said, Christ came who is over all, comma, God blessed forever. So the seed of the woman is not only going to be the woman's seed, also going to be God in the flesh. God blessed forever. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Those are things that could only apply to Jesus Christ. So it says that these things are God. God is the one who was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, and so forth. So the Bible tells us there in the book of Isaiah that Christ would be born a child, that he'd grow up, and that he would fulfill these prophecies concerning Messiah. Now, I want you to take your Bible, if you have one, and turn to Isaiah. We're going to look at some prophecies about Jesus in the book of Isaiah. Now, keep in mind that the book of Isaiah is a book that was written seven to eight hundred years before Christ. And in this past century, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found several copies of the book of Isaiah. One of them written on copper, etched into copper. Something that could not fade with time. And on that copper scroll, dated about 200 to 250 years before Christ, we have the same copy of Isaiah that you have before you here in the King James Bible. So we know for certain, for scientific fact, that the book of Isaiah was written before its fulfillment. And so these prophecies at least were in writing 250 years before Christ. And I'm sure that people would not have hurried out 
and etched the book of Isaiah into copper if it had just been written. It had to have been around a long time and treasured highly or they would not have put it into copper, something to last forever. So it was already an old book to them at that time. Now, in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, he says, I've sworn by myself, the word has gone of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear, saying, surely shall one say, the Lord have our righteousness and strength, even to him shall men come and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed in the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. So the prophecy says that all the seed of Israel will find salvation in this one. Now in Isaiah 52, he says, verse 3, For thus saith the Lord, you've sold yourselves for naught, you shall be redeemed without money. So this Messiah is going to be a redeemer. In verse 10, he says, And the Lord hath bared his holy arm, in the eyes of all nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And then in verse 14, as many were astounded at him, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So the prophecy is that when this seed comes, when this Messiah comes, that his image is going to be marred. He's going to be scarred more than any man. Isaiah 53 tells us, so that's where we're going to settle. Turn to Isaiah 53. We're going to look at it in more detail. Remember now, we're looking at a prophecy written 800 years before Jesus. He starts off Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he, this is the promised seed, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. So this Messiah is going to be a baby, a child born that's going to have to grow up as a root out of dry ground. Isaiah 11 says that it is out of the stem of Jesse that a branch will come forth. So the Messiah is going to be a descendant of Jesse. Now picture this. If we were to take this wall and let this represent all of humanity. Over here is the United States. Here is Britain, here is China, France, all the different nations down through here. Now, God looked at the whole world and he selected one country out of all these from which Messiah would come, from which the seed of the woman should come. He selected the nation of Israel. That means Messiah cannot come from Saudi Arabia. That means it can't be Muhammad. Messiah cannot come from Jordan or Iraq or Iran or China or Japan or India or Africa or the United States. He cannot come from any of those countries except one, the nation of Israel. Now the nation of Israel had 12 tribes, so let's divide this into 12 sections. The tribe of Ishakar cannot produce the Messiah. The tribe of Benjamin cannot produce the Messiah. Only the tribe of Judah out of that whole nation can produce this promised seed. According to Bible prophecy, in Genesis chapter 50, he speaks of that. Now, the tribe of Judah was very large, and it had hundreds of families. So take the hundreds of families in the tribe of Judah, and God rejected all of them except for one, the family line of Jesse. We read that there in Isaiah. So God chose the family line of Jesse and said, through Jesse 
will come this promised seed. Now that's pretty narrow. Think about it. Only one family line on the face of the earth can produce the promised seed. But then Jesse had eight sons. That means the family is now divided eight different ways. Which one of those? God rejects all of those and chooses one. David. So now only through David can Messiah come. And then David has several sons. God rejects all of those and chooses only one. Solomon. And so now we have a Bible prophecy that sometime in the future through David, through Solomon, Messiah will come. And then over in the book of Malachi and Zechariah, God chooses the, the place where the Messiah will come from. He said he will come from the little town of Bethlehem. So now Messiah must be one nation, one tribe, one family, one part of that family from one town on the face of the earth. Now that's narrowing it down pretty narrow. Now Isaiah 53 tells us something that's going to happen to this promised seed. It tells us how his heel will be bitten by that serpent. How he will be wounded and what that wounding will mean for the people on the earth. So he says in Isaiah 53 verse 2, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor calmness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So Jesus was not a pretty person. He was not some uh, tall, uh, particularly muscular, uh, exotic creature that everybody would just want to put on some Hollywood film. He would have just been an ordinary looking Jew, ordinary looking carpenter with a nose a little too big, a forehead a little too slanted, maybe eyes a little too bugged, lips a little too wide, skin a little too dark, maybe a little too short, with hands a little too big from doing carpentry work. He would not have stood out as the leading actor in any movie on the face of the earth. So God chose this man to be the Messiah. And then it says, verse 14, as many were astounded at him, his visage, 52.3, 3, 52.3 is where I am, his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So something would happen to this Messiah that would mar his image. 53.3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. So it says that this promised seed is going to be rejected by men. People are going to hide their face. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And people are not going to value him when he comes. They're not going to recognize him for who he was. For surely he hath borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So it said that this Messiah is going to bear the griefs and sorrows of the human race. And they're going to think that he's smitten by God. That God is somehow punishing him, afflicting him. Now when Jesus was on the cross, the people who looked at him, many of them thought he was some kind of criminal. And those who knew him and knew what he stood for, figured that 
he had come to this end because God was punishing him. God was judging him. Verse 5, Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. So the prophecy is that the Messiah will suffer wounds, but it will be for the transgressions of other people that he's wounded. He was bruised for our iniquities. So not only will he be wounded, but he will be bruised. He will be struck. He will be hit. The Bible tells us that they blindfolded him and hit him in the face with the heels of their hand. So much that his image was marred more than any man. His lips were puffed. His eyes were swollen shut. Mel Gibson's movie was mild and sedate compared to what actually happened to Jesus. His face was swollen beyond recognition and puffed out. His lips were torn. He was bleeding. Crowns of thorn were driven down around his head. He was hit with a stick in the head. He was hit by, uh, by the heels of people's hands. And then they pulled out his beard, another prophecy in Jeremiah. So great chunks of flesh were gone from his face. And then it says, all we like sheep have gone astray, 53.6. We've turned every one to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it tells us that the reason Jesus will be bruised, the reason he'll be spit upon, the reason his beard will be pulled out is that God is chastening him on our behalf. God is punishing him in our place. God will lay our sin upon him because we've gone astray, because we've turned our own way, because we've done our own thing. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. So the prophecy is that in his oppression and in his affliction, that he will not speak in his behalf. The Bible tells us that he remained silent, did not defend himself when he was accused. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. So the prophecy is that like a lamb is taken to a place to be tied up and killed on behalf of someone else. So Jesus will come to a place of sacrifice and be killed as a lamb is killed. And as sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. The dumb, that means not speaking. So Jesus refused to speak in defense of himself. Eight, he was taken from prison and from judgment. Jesus was placed in prison briefly, and he was taken before two different judgments. And after that, he was brought out before the people. For he was cut off out of the land of the living. So the prophecy is that Jesus will die. He will be killed for the transgressions of my people was he stricken. And it was for the transgressions of others that he's killed. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. So the prophecy is that Jesus will be buried in a grave. His body will not be left out in the open in a field. Will not rot or deteriorate somewhere. Will not be dissipate by drowning. He will actually be buried and he'll be buried in a rich man's grave. Now, there's not very many rich men relative to the rest of us. And yet Jesus, having never owned any property, having never had any money or station in life, yet would end up in a rich man's tomb. And so it was after Jesus' death, a rich man who had his own tomb already made, who had a nice place and a rich cemetery prepared for himself, had Jesus' body taken and placed in his own new tomb, just as the prophecy said. Because he hath done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. So he never did sin. He didn't sin as the rest of us have. Verse 10. Now how would God take this? How would God respond to his son being so abused? Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. 
God intended for Jesus to suffer so. God intended for his Messiah to suffer so. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. God put his own son to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. God made the soul of his son an offering for sin. He shall see his seed and shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. So the prophecy is that his death will not be the end of him. That he will see the result, his seed. He will see his seed. He will see his children. And his days will be prolonged after his death. So it was that Jesus was raised. So this is a prophecy of resurrection. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. God will be satisfied when he sees his son's travail. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. So many people will experience justification as a result of what this man does. And he shall bear their iniquity. So he bears the sin in justifying them. Wherefore will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now that verse 12 is packed full. Think about what it says concerning Messiah. It said, I poured out his soul unto death. That is, he will die. Numbered with the transgressors. When he died, he was in among actual transgressors. So he didn't die separate. He died with other people, two of which were sinners. And he bare the sins of many. So though the transgressors were, had violated the law of God and were dying for their own sin, when he died, he was bearing the sins of others. And he made intercession for the transgressors. So these two transgressors that were on the cross... You remember how one of them pleaded with Jesus and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. So Jesus made intercession for a transgressor, even in his death. And afterwards, he's made intercession for us in his death. So all this, remember, is given about 800 years before Jesus comes into the world. So beautiful, beautiful prophecy. And he bare the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. Now I'm going to read 30 prophecies that came out of this one chapter. I have a list of 80 different references, some of which are chapter long, of prophecies in the book of Isaiah concerning Christ. But remember, this all just comes out of one chapter right here. If we were to actually detail the individual prophecies, someone added them up and said there's 340 prophecies of Christ. 340. All right. First of all, he'll grow up. Grow up. So it's got to be a baby to grow up. He did no violence, did not lie, not personally attractive, not be believed, rejected of men, esteemed not. People thought he was touched by God, crazy, punished. He was placed in prison. He was put in judgment. He did not open his mouth in his own defense. He'll be numbered with transgressors, die with transgressors, brought as a lamb to be slaughtered. He'll be wounded, he'll be bruised, he'll receive stripes on his back. He was wounded to receive the chastisement of others, due to others. God laid on him iniquities, his soul was made an offering for sin. He'll bear the sins of many, he'll bear the iniquities of many. He bore the griefs and sorrows, he will die. He was cut off out of the land of the living, he died with wicked men. He buried in the tomb of a rich man. God was 
pleased for him to be thus bruised. He'll live to see the fruit of his doing. God's will will be conducted in his hand. He'll justify many. He'll live forever. And he'll become the intercessor of transgressors. Now, how much detail could you want before you knew this was God's book, God's prophecies, God's chapter on his Messiah? So when God said that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, but that the serpent would bruise the heel of the woman, he was anticipating this event when Satan would bite the Lord Jesus Christ and bring him to this end. But the amazing thing is, the Bible said, it pleased God that it should occur. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It pleased God. God designed this. God willed this. God anticipated this from the Garden of Eden, that his son would suffer so and be resurrected and intercede for us on our behalf. So thank God for such a Savior and such a book of prophecy that points us to Christ. No other book on the face of the earth does this. The Koran wouldn't take, wouldn't dare attempt anything like this. None of the Eastern holy books would attempt prophecy like this. Only the word of God could be so chocked full of Bible prophecy and be so detailed in every way in what it says. And that's just out of the book of Isaiah. And most of that out of one or two book or chapters that we read to you. If we were to go all the way through Isaiah and look at all 80 of those prophecies, you'd be astounded. If we then were to add the prophecies in Psalms, prophecies in Zechariah, Malachi, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, even the book of Genesis, uh, you would be uh, overwhelmed with the amount of detailed prophecy that the Bible contains. All right, I'm going to stop there. Get your Bibles out. We're going to look at prophecies quoted in the book of Hebrews. In the first three chapters, we're going to look in the Old Testament at the prophecy itself to get the greater context to the prophecy. The first one is Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters and the seas together as a heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. That's a very masculine passage of scripture right there to me. It's just got some punch. Now, Psalm 110.1 is a passage quoted several times in the book of Hebrews. It says this, The Lord said unto my Lord. Jesus used this passage in an argument with the Pharisees. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. You remember Jesus asked the Pharisees, the one whom David called Lord. Why the Lord call him Lord, basically. Uh, in other words, this creates a strange problem unless the father has a son who is Lord. How could David's Lord be God at the same time and be a son? The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So God the Father, Jehovah, that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is the word Jehovah. So Jehovah said unto David's Lord, sit on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Who's this Lord of David? Who's David's Lord? That Jehovah God would speak to him and say, sit on my right hand. And how is David's Lord, David being a mortal, a human being, how's his Lord going to sit on the right hand of God? 
create a strange problem for the Jews. Who is this Lord that is so magnificent that he can sit on the right hand of Jehovah God until God makes his enemies his footstool? And the Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. The people shall be willing in the day of thy power. This part's not quoted, but see what's interesting is to go back when Paul, if he wrote Hebrews, when he quotes a single phrase out of Psalm 110, is to go back and look at the whole Psalm knowing that he's just placed his stamp of legitimacy on this as a messianic Psalm. In other words, we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that that passage is messianic. It talks about Jesus. So we look at it to see what the surrounding verses, what the whole psalm is saying. And we find other things, other prophecies about Jesus. If you were to take all of the prophecies that are quoted in the New Testament and go back and take all of the passages, you'd have a great volume of scripture that is messianic. So the people shall be willing in the day of that power. One ten three. So there's going to be a day when Jesus comes in power and the people's hearts will be willing in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. Isn't that a beautiful passage? How poetic that is. How lovely. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. So Jesus is eternal and he dwells in the beauty of holiness like the dew early in the morning. What a great time to be out. The Lord, verse 4 is also a quote in Hebrews, quotes three times. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here in this psalm, this messianic psalm is God swearing. That he's going to have a priest who's going to sit on his right hand, who's going to come to the people and the people are going to be willing in the day of his power. And this priest is going to be after Melchizedek's order. So great prophecy. The Lord at my right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. This is going to be a day of judgment. And this Lord sitting on the right hand of the father will strike through the kings. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. And that's the book of Revelation. That this one who's going to be after the order of Melchizedek, who's going to sit on the father's right hand, who's going to be David's Lord, whom God will call Lord. This one is going to strike through kings. Fill the valleys full of dead bodies and wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. You say, now what, what is this symbol of him drinking the brook in the way? Why does a man drink of a brook? He's thirsty, right? Humans drink of brooks. Do you think of angels as stooping over and drinking out of a creek or a spring? Getting a drink? Do you think of angels as getting a drink? Have you thought of them maybe as... They never have to get a drink. When Jesus Christ comes back to the earth and he is in this battle against the forces at Armageddon and he's coming against those, he will get down off of his white horse, bend down and drink out of the brook that flows from the holy city. 
something he did years and years ago. So and there's a marvelous prophecy here. Jesus comes as a human. Do you remember in his resurrection, he fixed supper for the disciples. And when they got there, he had food on the coals, had fish and bread cooked. And when he showed up right after his resurrection, they gave him a piece of fish, which he ate. And they gave him some honeycomb, which he put into his mouth and ate and swallowed it. So the resurrected eternal son of God still eats, still drinks, and is still in human form that he can be touched and seen and felt. And he's David's Lord. And he's God's son. He is God and he is man at the same time. He rides a white horse, he drinks from brooks, and he will slay God's enemies in the day of judgment. And right now he sits on the right hand interceding for us. You see that little psalm, Psalm 110, only seven verses long. And what would you expect from a psalm about Messiah? Would you expect it to be six verses long? Absolutely not. Thirteen verses long, God forbid. It's got to be seven verses long. And that's what it is. And uh, notice the first verse. The Lord said unto my Lord. First is the number of God in the Bible. The third verse. The people shall be willing in the day of thy power. And the fourth verse. The Lord has sworn will not repent thou a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then the sixth verse. What is it? He shall judge among the heathen. Fill the places with dead bodies. And then what you expect for the number six. And then seven, he shall drink in the brook in the way. And that is uh, the tribulation time when he will do that. So even the verses, references in there match the meaning of numbers throughout the scripture. All right, Psalm 2 is another one that's quoted here in the book of Hebrews. Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The heathen are raging. They're raging right now. They're imagining vain things. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Sounds like the UN. Against the Lord and against his anointed saying. So God's anointed is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the kings of the earth have united themselves against Jesus saying, here's what they say. Let us break their bands asunder. Let us cast away their cords from us. So what the world is wanting to do in this concerted, united effort is to cast off the restraints of faith, of religion, of righteousness, to be free from religious restraints. If there is one movement in Hollywood, in the government, in the world today, it's to cast off the restraints of religion, the dictates of conscience. Look, verse 3, let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords from us. How's God going to respond? It says of Jesus, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. <laughs> he just laughs. Nothing great spiritual. When they start doing that, like right now, what's Jesus doing? I mean, we get all upset, you know, you get nervous. You get upset. Look at all the things happening in the world. Look how terrible it is. Look at the conditions that are coming upon us. Jesus, please help us. He says, son, you need to join me. Oh, Lord, I'll get down on my knee. He said, no, laughing. Amen. Just laugh at it. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. To deride is not thought of as a wholesome 
response to something. To deride someone is to lorate them, to condemn them, to ride their case, to wear them out with your words, to deride them, to reduce them to less than worthy. He shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. I see him laughing and laughing and laughing until he's tired laughing and it's not fun anymore. And then he stands up in wrath and begins to vex them, which happens in the tribulation. In his sore displeasure, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That holy hill of Zion is the same hill on which Lucifer dwelt when he was in Eden, the garden of God. It is the mount of God before Genesis chapter 1. It is the hill on which Abraham offered Isaac in sacrifice. It is the hill on which the holy temple was built. It is the hill on which Jesus Christ was found guilty and taken out to the edge of it there and crucified outside the camp. It is the hill that he will come back to, the edge of it, the Mount of Olives, on his second coming, and is the hill on which the New Jerusalem will sit and become the capital city of the world. It is the most important mountaintop on the face of the earth and has been from before man was created until the end. Seven, I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, and this is quote, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now, isn't that a good prophecy of Jesus? Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. You see, when I went to Bible college, they told me that Jesus was the eternal begotten son of God. They told me that he was always been the son of God. No, there was a day when God begat Jesus Christ, and it was about 2,000 years ago in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He placed seed, God's divine seed, into the womb of the Virgin Mary, and Jesus was begotten by God. The same way that Adam begot a son, except without penetration or copulation. Jesus was begotten in an identical method of all born babies on the face of the earth. He's the only begotten son of God. You see, if you spiritualize that, you've got real problems. If you try to be allegorical about it, if you take that literally, then it says exactly what it means. He's the only begotten son of God. Now, Adam was a created son, but he wasn't a begotten son. See? And we're sons of God, but we're not begotten sons of God. See, we're born again sons of God. Now, we're begotten in a, maybe a spiritual sense, but Jesus is the only one that's literally, physically begotten of God. When we enter into him, say, and become one in him, then we become his begotten son as his body. But we're not begotten individually, personally, only he was. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. So God the Father says to God the Son, if you'll ask me, I'll give you the heathen. For your inheritance. And the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. Jesus Christ came to the earth to possess this planet. When Adam lost it, he came to take it back. 
So Jesus, as a man, qualified to receive this planet and rule over it. So the father says to the son in his success as a human being, he said, if you'll ask me, I will give you the heathen as your inheritance. And I'll give you the uttermost parts of the earth, the very corners of it, for your possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. When a potter made a pot and it set it up to dry and it, it's crooked or it doesn't work out right, it's a dry clay pot, but it's not baked yet. Well, that clay can be used again. But to use it again, he has got to take a steel rod and pound on it until it's totally, completely powder, just like flour. Then he can mix it with water, reconstitute it as soft, pliable clay, put it back on the wheel, and make it again. So he says he's going to dash them in pieces like a potter would a vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Now, here's a good one. Kiss the sun. Wait a minute. And this is the Old Testament? And this written a thousand years before Jesus Christ? Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are they that put their trust in him. Kiss the sun. Lest to be angry, you perish from the wise. So, see, in the context of this messianic psalm, a psalm that says, He's the anointed, psalm that says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish out of the way. So, it is recognizing that this one who comes will be the son of God. Marvelous psalm. And then, let's go to Psalm 45. And these are all just in the first, mostly the first chapter, a little bit of the second chapter of Hebrews. That these are quoted. Psalm 45. He said, my heart is indicting a good matter. In other words, he was meditating. I speak of things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. He said, thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. So David is writing about someone whom he says is more fair than the children of men. Grace is poured in thy lips, therefore God has blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. So this one who's fairer than the children of men is challenged to gird on his sword in the majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Six. This is the quote. Six and seven, a couple of them. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Now that's quoted in Hebrews. Thy throne... O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest iniquity. Therefore God, thy God. Do you notice something strange about that wording? He speaks of God's God in the passage. He speaks of God's God. Hath anointed thee with all of gladness above thy fellows. So this is a quote of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So we know it's referring to him. 
that Jesus Christ is going to love righteousness and hate iniquity, and his God is going to anoint him with all of gladness above his fellows. Now, the all of gladness is one of the oils God anoints people with. I don't know what all the oils are he's got. He's got a power oil. I know that. He's got a healing oil. I know that. He's got a ministry oil. I know that. So there's different oils, but he's also got an oil of gladness. Now that's an oil you don't hear about too often. And uh, I've seen some people, I'd like to sneak up and sprinkle some of that oil on them. You know, when they didn't know it. And boy, nobody'd recognize them after that. I wouldn't recognize them. But I feel like I get the oil of gladness on my head. Jesus was anointed with it above all his fellows. No one's ever had the oil of gladness like Jesus did. He was glad, always glad. And we have reason to be glad knowing the Lord. And there are things in your life that you could be sad about, things in your life that are disappointing to you. But you know, when you got the oil of gladness, anointing from the oil of gladness, then there's just too much to be glad about to dwell on those things that would make you sad. But Jesus was anointed with it above all his fellows. The old movies they used to make of Jesus always just disturbed me because he'd walk around like this. I picture Jesus uh, skipping and scuffling through uh, Galilee with the disciples. Punching them around and slapping them around and laughing and uh, just having a great time. Anointed with the oil of gladness above all his fellows. Thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and casein out of the ivory palaces whereby they've made thee glad. So he comes out of the ivory. We've got a song, out of the ivory palaces. You remember that? Uh, maybe you won't recognize it, but uh, there's a song, out of the ivory palaces, and uh, whereby they've made thee glad. King's daughters were among the honorable women. Now, who are the king's daughters? This would be the Jews who come to the wedding, the marriage of the Lamb. Were among the honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of offer. Now, guess who the queen is here? That's the church. So here's the church on his right hand, dressed in gold. And the king's daughters are present. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. This is speaking to the Jews here. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift at this wedding. The daughter of Tyre, that's a Gentile country, city. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought into the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. In the New Testament, there's a parable of five wise and five foolish virgins who were coming to a wedding not to be married but to be attendants at it and uh, five of the virgins didn't have enough oil some but not enough and they said to the five who had lots of oil please give us of your oil and they said no lest there not be enough for us when he comes and so the five went away to buy oil and the bridegroom came late at night and went into the wedding and took in five virgins with him these were bridesmaids, Jewish bridesmaids. And the other five Jewish bridesmaids showed back up and the door was shut and they couldn't get in. It was too late. So throughout the 
Bible, there are many references to the nation of Israel as being guests or being bridesmaids or being attendants or viewing the wedding of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the church is the queen, the church is the bride. The Jews are the guest at the bride during that time. And he says, with gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace instead of thy fathers. That's the Old Testament Jewish fathers. Shall be thy children whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. And that's the, Jesus said to the disciples, he said, if you've been faithful unto me, he said, I'll make you ruler over 10 cities, over five cities. And so they'll be made princes in the earth. Thou will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall thy people praise thee forever and ever. And so here's another messianic psalm, Psalm 45. See, when you, when you know that what you're reading is a messianic psalm, because it's quoting the New Testament, then those little details that are in it have a place. They say something. You know, they, they're, they're talking about something. And so you just think about other verses of scripture and other parables and phrases and and you start pulling all that together in your mind and you can see that every detail in here is not just a piece of poetry this is a history written ahead of time this is prophecy and uh it's beautiful and i mean that's just a few the bible is chock full of this i've been reading it for years and just love it every time i read it over and over and over again i taught all the way through psalms well, not all the way through most of the way through psalms way back when i was 20 to 25 and where i was pastor of a church every wednesday night that's what we took a psalm and taught through it did a lot of preparation for it and some people said they enjoyed that more than anything else we did all week long more than our sunday morning and sunday night sermon was just going through the psalms one at a time and looking at what God had to say. Okay, I'll stop there. You've been listening to Michael Pearl teach the Word of God. This is a production of No Greater Joy Ministries Incorporated, a 501c3 nonprofit corporation. Upon request, we'll send you a free bi-monthly publication containing our catalog of books, tapes, CDs, DVDs, and videos by Michael Pearl. Write to us at No Greater Joy, 1000 Pearl Road, Pleasantville, Tennessee, 37033, or visit us and order online at nogreaterjoy.org.